This um, this is Trump Park Avenue. It's an historic 32 story luxury condo in Manhattan. It's one of the highlights, you could say, in Donald Trump's real estate portfolio. And because of the New York Attorney General's lawsuit against Mr. Trump, we know that in 2020, the Trump Organization received an appraisal for Trump Park Avenue, which set its value at $84.5 million. It's an interesting sum. Today, a jury ordered Donald Trump to pay writer E. Jean Carroll $83.3 million, approximately one Trump Park Avenue, for defaming her. Breaking that number down a little bit more, the jury awarded E. Jean Carroll $18.3 million to compensate her for the harm Trump's lies caused her. They awarded her another $65 million in punitive damages to, well, punish Donald Trump to deter him from defaming E. Jean Carroll ever again. We'll have more on that in just a moment. The nine-member jury took just two hours and 45 minutes to reach its verdict after hearing final arguments from Trump and Carroll's lawyers. Mr. Trump himself spent the final day of the trial causing disruption. When Ms. Carroll's lawyers were giving their closing arguments, Trump stood up and he walked out of the room, at which point the judge interrupted Ms. Carroll's lawyers and ordered that the official record reflect Donald Trump's abrupt exit. At one point, the judge had to caution Trump's attorney, Alina Haba, that she was on the verge of spending some time in lockup for her own interruptions. Then, around the time Trump's attorney was making her closing arguments, more than a dozen posts, a dozen posts, were made on Trump's Truth Social account, attacking both E. Jean Carroll and the judge, Posts that repeated some of the same defamatory claims for which Donald Trump was now being forced to pay millions and millions of dollars. By the way, this was after Trump had already posted a video at 12.16 a.m. in which he personally attacks Ms. Carroll again. I don't even know who this woman is. I have no idea who she is, where she came from. This is another scam. It's a political witch hunt. And somehow we're going to have to fight this. All of this would seem to be grounds for E. Jean Carroll to potentially sue Donald Trump for defamation again. And remember that this is the second defamation case brought by E. Jean Carroll to come to trial. A different jury already awarded her $5.5 million in her other case against Donald Trump. Donald Trump is literally awash in defamation cases here. He is on the hook for extraordinary amounts of money, and yet he cannot seem to help himself. Now, Trump has vowed to appeal this verdict, and as he has already appealed the verdict for his other defamation case. But in the meantime, Donald Trump still has to find a way to pay. As the New York Times very helpfully explains, Mr. Trump has tapped his political action committee's coffers to pay for his own legal fees and other expenses stemming from his criminal indictments and civil trials. Yet, $83.3 million eclipses the amount in his political accounts. The verdict on Friday will require Donald Trump to reach into his own pocket. So in order to meet his financial obligations here, Donald Trump will either have to give the court $83 million to hold on to while the appeals process plays out, or he'll have to put up some kind of collateral for a loan. Now, the Internet is already having fun with that second option. There are already several depictions of E. Jean Carroll Tower and E. Jean Carroll Tower Chicago. 
You already know that the appraised value of Trump Park Avenue would just barely cover the cost of Trump's obligations here. And that's very likely not even enough to cover all of his financial exposure. After all, we are still awaiting a decision by New York Judge Arthur and Goron, the man who is overseeing Trump's massive civil fraud case. In that case, New York Attorney General Letitia James is seeking a judgment of $370 million. And Judge Ngoran's ruling is expected in the next couple of weeks. Could be a very expensive start to Donald Trump's new year. Whatever the exact price tag, though, these civil trials are proof that Donald Trump cannot escape accountability forever. That eventually the bill comes due. In response to today's verdict, Eugene Carroll released a statement. This is a great victory for every woman who stands up when she's been knocked down and a huge defeat for every bully who has tried to keep a woman down. Joining me now are Neil Katyal, former acting solicitor general of the United States, and Katie Fang, host of The Katie Fang Show here on MSNBC. Thank you both for being here tonight. Um, Neil, I just want to first get your reaction to these numbers that we saw out of this defamation case in New York today. Well, I know the Internet's having fun with it, but this is a really serious thing. A former president has now been found liable for sexually abusing Gene Carroll and is now not just liable, but has to pay tens of millions of dollars in damages because the jury found that they needed that much to deter him, that he'd do something like this again. So to use the technical legal term, it's a bigly loss for Donald Trump. Yeah. This is a decision that, you know, Alex, doesn't come from the deep state. It doesn't come from a special prosecutor or the Biden administration. It's a jury of Donald Trump's peers. And they heard him. That he had the opportunity to present the best case he could. He tried. They found it thoroughly unconvincing. Yeah. And it doesn't up for what Gene Carroll endured, but there's certainly some sense of justice in it. Um, Katie, this is money for defaming Miss Carroll. Uh, there was a separate trial for the sexual assault. The price tag here is extraordinary. It seems to me a layman. But I wonder if you can talk a little bit about your expectations for how Donald Trump actually coughs up this money, whether this is held in escrow, whether he seeks a loan, given what happened in previous uh, civil trials. Yeah. So, you know, Alex, I like to say, don't sleep on the civil cases. People get very excited about the criminal cases, right? Because clearly the idea of Donald Trump in jail is pretty titillating. However, don't sleep on the civil cases because those are the ones that hit him where it hurts him the most. Donald Trump defiantly thinks that he's not going to have to, you know, serve a day in jail. And as of right now, he hasn't. But when it comes to paying up, he has had to pony up at least 5.5 to 5.6 million dollars because he had to post that in order to appeal the first defamation trial victory that Eugene Carroll secured against him. Now, whether he's able to pony up that same amount in terms of the verdict that just came in is left to be seen. But under the appropriate statutory strictures that exist, he's going to have to pay that entire amount in a bond plus interest to cover the duration of the appeals process. We do know that that first defamation trial that E. Jean Carroll brought and successfully won in 2023, that that one's still winding its way through the appellate courts. And so that interest keeps on ticking along. But January 31st is right around the corner. And that is the date that Justice Ngoron and the New York Attorney General's civil fraud trial is due to render his verdict on the remaining counts that are being brought by Letitia James. 
And as we know, she's seeking $370 million in disgorgement. So if Donald Trump thought that this $83.3 million today was a lot of money, he may be in for a rude awakening next week. But I also want to talk about very quickly, Alex, the following concept, which is this. When you saw what happened today with Donald Trump happen, it's because there was a foundation laid from that first trial, Mm. meaning he went in today and he could not throughout the course of this trial, deny liability. And that was because of that original verdict. Same thing went on in the New York Attorney General's case. A finding of partial summary judgment was done by Justice Ngoron. And so the determination that fraud had already been perpetrated against Trump, uh, by Trump, excuse me, his sons and his business entities, he went into this latest trial against Letitia James with the same thing. And so because of that, and when you've seen that you've now had two juries come back against him, to Neil Katyal's point as well, right? There have been grand juries that have returned indictments. These have been people. These have been ordinary citizens that have been called to duty, that have been asked to serve in these capacities. They're the ones that have returned indictments. And now they're the ones that have returned these verdicts. And so these are the people, the ordinary citizens that are doing extraordinary work that are telling Donald Trump, you're now being held accountable. Yeah, it's such a good point. And I want to get to Judge Angoran's looming um, decision in a minute. But Neil, to, to Katie's point about the jury, I thought that was, this was really remarkable. <clears throat> judge Kaplan, the judge in this case, told the jury, my advice to you is that you never disclose that you were on this jury. First of all, Neil, how unusual is it for a judge to say something like that to a jury? And I mean, if you're a member of the jury, Talk to me about how extraordinary that position is in the age of Trump. In a quarter century of practicing, Alex, I've never heard a statement like that from any judge. Um, It just doesn't exist. And it just demonstrates just how far out of the norm Donald Trump is and what he does to people who call him out and hold him liable. And so Gene Carroll has to fear, you know, the jury has to fear. And this judge is not like some wild-eyed lefty judge. This is one of the most respected judges in the country, Judge Kaplan. I don't think he's considered political in any way, shape, or form. And when he, for him to say that, I think is pretty extraordinary. And then just to pick up on a point Katie made, if I were one of Trump's criminal attorneys right now, I'd be terrified at what happened today. Because it's not the amount of damages, the $83 million that's concerning, as much as it shows how much ordinary people, juries, don't trust Donald Trump. They don't believe him. And you also saw the way Donald Trump acted in court. I mean, you can't storm out of court or mutter under your breath or act like an entitled toddler in a criminal trial. It's not going to work before the jury. And so I think if you're one of the Trump's lawyers right now facing the criminal stuff, you're going to double down on your attempt to try and delay, delay, delay this thing until after the election with the hope he can win and undo those prosecutions. This well, civil I- case, by the way, can't be undone. Even if he wins the presidency, you know, this judgment will stand. He'll have to obviously try and reverse it on appeal, but he can't order the Justice Department to drop it. Neil, just to that end, I, I think it's worth remarking on a little bit uh, the way in which Judge Lewis Kaplan dealt with Donald Trump's, as you call them, toddler outbursts. I mean, there's been a lot of talk about can any judge rein Donald Trump in when he decides to sort of off road in the courtroom? And it feels like Judge Kaplan actually managed it quite well. And the jury understood that management, which is how they came to the verdict they did. 
Yeah, no, Kaplan's an extraordinary judge, a tough judge. Um, this is the judge that just presided over the Sam Bankman fried trial uh, before. Um, and yes, he did not, you know, tolerate uh, Donald Trump's antics at all, or his lawyers, um, for that matter. Um, you know, it remains to be seen whether other judges will be like that. But I will tell you, having watched Judge Chutkin in court, I think she's like Judge Kaplan in the sense of tough and no-nonsense and apolitical. Um, Katie, I want to go back to that, uh, the point of Judge Angoron. And I guess I wonder, to what degree is Angoron sort of looking at the verdict here, the, the magnitude of the jury's decision in terms of awarding $83.3 million in this defamation case, and, and to what degree that consider, that, that sort of <clears throat> that price tag figures into his own arithmetic, if you will, as he as he holds the Trump organization liable for fraud. Yeah. So, Alex, I don't think Justice Ngoron cares. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, in a good way. Justice Ngoron has already delivered what people have labeled the corporate death penalty on Donald Trump. And whether that holds up on appeal is left to be seen. But we have already seen Justice Ngoron make a blistering, enter a blistering order against Donald Trump and the other defendants when it comes to the findings of fraud that Justice Ngoron has reached. And so I think we're all aware. I think the world is acutely aware of what just happened to Donald Trump today to the tune of 80 $3.3 million. But I think Justice Ngoron is looking, if he's looking at that, it's not going to influence what he does in his case. It's just going to sit there and basically probably justify in his mind hammering Donald Trump for upwards of $300-something million. I did want to quickly note something because Neil talked about the fact that if Donald Trump becomes president again, he's just going to eradicate all of his criminal prosecutions and indictments and they're all going to go by the wayside, but he can't eliminate this one. Recall that he tried, though. Remember, this is the very first of E. Jean Carroll's cases that she brought against Donald Trump. And because Donald Trump was president of the United States at the time that he made the defamatory statements at issue in this case, the Department of Justice substituted itself for Donald Trump under the Westfall Act. And so there was this there was this litigation that went through appeals to basically get the DOJ to withdraw its certification. But if they had not done so, if the DOJ had remained, then this case would never have gone forward. And so there's a lot of stuff that's gone on. This is the first lawsuit that was brought by Eugene Carroll. It wasn't the second. The second one actually went to trial first. But this is the first lawsuit that was brought. And but for the DOJ withdrawing its certification, this case never would have seen the light of, of a jury trial. Well, it is just an extraordinary um, it's an extraordinary moment, I think, in, in holding a wrongdoer accountable and someone who, by the way, continued to defame uh, the person in question after this trial had begun the eve of its conclusion. Eugene Carroll could keep suing Donald Trump as long as he makes his statements, as, as far as it seems. Uh, Neil Katyal and Katie Fang, thank you so much for your time tonight. And a big programming note, E. Jean Carroll is going to give her first interview following this verdict to our very own Rachel Maddow this coming Monday night at 9 p.m. Eastern. You are not going to miss that. Coming up, as Trump rages against tonight's decision, Nikki Haley weighs in. Kind of. What Trump's fellow Republicans are saying or not saying about that $83 million verdict. That's next. There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents 
Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday, May 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. Okay, so on the day that E. Jean Carroll's latest defamation trial began, which was nearly a week and a half ago, this is what former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley had to say about her chief rival for the Republican presidential nomination. Her, you're the only woman in this race. How do you feel about your party's front runner being held liable for sexual abuse? I mean, first of all, I haven't paid attention to his, his cases, and I'm not a lawyer. All I know is that he's innocent until proven guilty. Okay, wait. Donald Trump has already been found liable of sexual assault. The fact that Donald Trump had sexually assaulted E. Jean Carroll, the fact that he had been found liable for defamation there, had been established well in advance of this particular trial. Another jury found Trump liable for sexually abusing Ms. Carroll, defaming her in and around that in May of last year. And a jury tonight has ordered Mr. Trump to pay E. Jean Carroll $83.3 million for defaming her over her entirely legitimate claims of sexual assault. But Nikki Haley still does not seem interested. This is her short statement. Donald Trump wants to be the presumptive nominee. and We're talking about $83 million in damages. We're not talking about fixing the border. We're not talking about tackling inflation. America can do better than Donald Trump and Joe Biden. Joining me now is Mark Leibovich, staff writer for The Atlantic. Mark, um, I am I marvel at this statement from Nikki Haley. First of all, Joe Biden has not been ordered to pay eighty three point three million dollars in damages to someone he has defamed. Um, And Nikki Haley somehow skirts saying anything about the issue at hand, which is the verdict handed down today. How how long can she keep doing this? Well, I mean, that was definitely a lame answer. There's no question about it. And it's also the answer of someone who does not want to be talking about Donald Trump's legal issues. Although I will say um, that, you know, the the more recent statement that you just showed um, is is sort of a sharper contrast that that Nikki Haley has has shown to this point. I mean, she her framing of this is that. $83 $83 million, these distractions, so you, I mean, they're, they're kind of abstract, but these are things that Donald Trump is focused on rather than the border, rather than the economy, things like that. So in some sense, I mean, she, she's trying to use it to kind of lump him with the larger political distractions, the madness that she is running against on the whole, lumping in with Biden, which, you know, obviously, as you mentioned, doesn't really fit here. But 
that's the kind of status quo that, that, that Haley is kind of running against. And, and essentially, that's her way around this. But clearly, as, you know, as that clip shows, this is not a topic she wants to be talking about. And probably, I assume, will be this, this will be her ML going forward. I mean, but Mark, just in the annals of like political history, when was the time it was a two-person race for a nomination and the opponent is literally gifted this massive... This massive verdict that is an indict, a searing indictment of the other candidate's character and doesn't touch it with a 10 foot pole. Can you think of any analog in American recent American history? No, not at all. I mean, look, it's uh, she has a clean shot at Donald Trump. I mean, I guess the analog that she's looking at is that the likes of, you know, Chris Christie and others who have yeah. more frontally attacked Donald Trump have gotten nowhere with this. And, you know, maybe there's another way to sort of finagle this somehow. I, I don't see it. But I mean, look, she... I guess you have to give her some grudging credit. She's still alive. She's still in the race. Not everyone, I mean, basically no one else is. And I don't know how you sort of go on offense from here, though. I, I think she has it in her. I think she clearly seems, I mean, she, she has the kind of, um, I guess, aptitude and the sort of athleticism politically to maybe make a case against it, but she just hasn't been willing to do it. So, yeah, it's frustrating. It's certainly unsatisfying. It does make you wonder if Nikki Haley is going to actually go at Donald Trump in a way that makes it possible for her to win or whether she's just playing for second place, maybe the vice presidency, something like that. I marvel at the Biden of it all, right? Invoking Joe Biden's name on a night like this. And then yeah. that's also happening on Trump's side, too. This is one of Trump's had many any sort of semi-statements about this, but this one really struck, um, stuck out to me. Absolutely ridiculous, he writes on Truth Social. I fully disagree with both verdicts and will, appealing, will be appealing this whole Biden-directed witch hunt focused on me and the Republican Party. Our legal system is out of control, being used as a political weapon, First Amendment, et cetera, et cetera. This is not America. Biden-directed witch hunt. Mark, I mean, I know if you if 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 a plate breaks somehow, it's Joe Biden's fault. Right. But but this seems like a stretch even for people who are inclined to side with Donald Trump in this. It's somehow E. Jean Carroll is part of a Biden directed witch hunt. It is. And then, look, persecution, victimization. I mean, this is central to Donald Trump's message. This is central to how, you know, why a lot of people who support him are identified with him. It's kind of a, a warped uh, dynamic going on, but it continues. And, you know, they're going to buy the, the notion, the absurd notion that it is a, a witch hunt. And, you know, it's also it's a way to sort of lump in Joe Biden and both sides this thing somehow. But ultimately, it's um, look, it, it, this is something that Donald Trump's supporters do want to hear. They are open to it. He can do no wrong. I mean, it sort of goes to the cult argument. Uh, frankly, it's really depressing, but it's something that's worked for him, and it seems to be the only place he can go at this point. Well, maybe with rank-and-file Trump supporters, but I do wonder uh, whether you think this at all reminds donors um, who, you know, Trump has recently consolidated along with endorsements from elected Republicans, whether it reminds them of the nightmare um, and the unending chaos that marked the Donald Trump years. Robert Costa, the intrepid reporter, tweets tonight, Carol's case, the jury order for Trump to pay $83.3 million comes as many of the nation's biggest GOP donors are preparing to meet in Palm Beach at the American Opportunity Alliance gathering, where the path ahead is on the agenda. And just days before, Haley's donors host a major fundraiser in New York City. I'll set Haley aside, but I, I do wonder whether you think you know, these these trials have existed in abstract. And tonight the piper comes to it's about paying the piper. I'm really mixing my metaphors here. <laughs> um, 
But, you know, whether this is kind of the beginning of an alarm ringing, and given the fact that there's more of this on the horizon in the coming months. Yeah, I mean, I do think that, that the idea that Donald Trump is never held accountable and so forth is is not true, because I think every time something like this happens, I mean, it doesn't just alienate donors and it doesn't just, you know, alienate his, his the people who endorse him. I mean, it's it's not only a reminder for voters also, it's just... There is a there's a very, very large and growing critical mass of people who do not want to vote for this guy. And just words like libel for sexual assault are not something you want next to your name for, you know, the next nine, 10 months. I mean, that's not going to help him. And and look, there there has been a cost to him politically. And for as much as we like to revel in the fact that he's never, um, you know, he's never seemingly hurt by this. I think the opposite is true. And I think, you know, I think his numbers have borne this out. And it's not going to help them going forward. And it certainly makes people nervous um, who are trying to rally or rally people around the Republican nominee in the next few months. Well, yeah. And I'm sure there's some concern that, you know, money's fungible. So do some of their donor dollars end up paying off E. Jean Carroll? I mean, the questions abound to be a Trump supporter and donor. Hmm, many questions. Mark Leibovich, thank you for your time this Friday night. Thanks, Alex. Coming up, more of my interview with California Governor Gavin Newsom, including whether he is actually running a shadow campaign for the American presidency. That's next. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com win. Last spring, California Governor Gavin Newsom went to Florida to meet with students from New College. That's the school that's become sort of the focus of Governor Ron DeSantis's anti-woke crusade. Newsom then traveled thousands of miles, again, outside of his home state, to meet with voters in Alabama and Mississippi and Utah. In December, Governor Newsom went to Georgia to debate Governor Ron DeSantis on Fox News. Yesterday, he was in South Carolina talking to young voters at Morris College, an historically black college. And now Governor Newsom is hitting the campaign trail in Nevada ahead of early primary voting in that state. If you notice, this is a tour of red states, and it is one that the governor is doing as an emissary of the Biden campaign to tell voters what is at stake in November. Yesterday, while in South Carolina, I had the opportunity to speak to Governor Newsom about that work. We talked about the upcoming election, about his party's messaging, and about reproductive rights. We also talked about Donald Trump's dominance over the Republican Party and the way Trump is running his campaign this time around. It's clear, though, that his ground game is way better than it was 
in previous election Much better cycles. campaign. They've racked up the endorsements. They have a stranglehold on the Republican Party. Yeah. They have a get-out-the-vote campaign that is, you know, unmatched, especially in the in the Republican primary. I mean, is that cause for trepidation? No, because look what we've done. We've outperformed in every single election. Outperformed by significant margins in every election, 2018, 20, 22, 23. And not just at the national stage, when you look at some of these mayor's races in Jacksonville or Colorado Springs. Yeah. I mean, in every election, Democrats are winning. It's one of the great winning streaks in modern American politics, particularly for an incumbent president. And I think Dobbs has a profound impact in terms of that, 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 that framework and that reality out on the streets. Today. Well, the latest stats, 64,000 women and girls got pregnant from rape in states where there are abortion bans. And Texas was the worst. You're the governor of a large state. I mean, do you think these Republican governors who oversaw these bans either didn't care or didn't understand what they well, were doing? I don't doing? think they care. Uh, I mean, that's, that's, that's Republican women who get president. It's pregnant. disgraceful. It's sick. Here's the problem with the Republican Party. Uh, they are, they always get in trouble when they actually get what they want. I mean, these six week bans before you even know you're pregnant, before you can even get a doctor's appointment, criminalizing young kids that were raped for trying to travel so that they can have a life and the freedom to decide for themselves versus guys like Tim Scott and Lindsey Graham that we have to go through and ask permission. It's a serious moment. And they're coming after contraception as well. That's how extreme they are. Yeah. That's not me idly saying that's a fact. I know you have strong feelings on this. Uh, a lot of things, I think. <laughs> yeah, right? I do. Insert subject here. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think a lot of people recognize what Donald Trump did to the Supreme Court to make the overturning of Roe possible. However, if he's asked about it, and on national television, he all this stuff, he lies about it. He obfuscates. He's very mushy. And it is working with a certain yep. section Can't of the electorate. I think it's 80% in New Hampshire. Trump wins 80% of Republicans who wanted a national abortion ban and 44% of those who don't. Similar kind of thing in, in Iowa. He is getting a pass nope. on this. Can't. So, so, I mean... Short of saying over and over again he's responsible, how do you further convince potentially skeptical voters that this dude really stands for the end of choice as we know it? Over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, we've got to flood the zone on that message. He can't be allowed to get away with it. He can't. We've got to go aggressively. I'm not here to, to argue in Trump's favor. I'm just saying some people don't believe he's in favor of a national abortion ban. Maybe because they remember his position being pro-choice in the in, 90s. In a nanosecond, he would sign that bill if it landed on his desk, period, full stop. Yeah, and I'm not arguing, period, I'm stop. not arguing against exactly. that. I and guess he's responsible for the state of affairs today. We just have to define the opposition and create that contrast. But we have to flood the zone to remind people of his record and the reality that we're living here today and the fear that women and girls have in this country because of the conditions he directly created through his actions. And that's our job. That's my job. It's our collective job. It's not Joe Biden and Kamala Harris's exclusive job. That's what a campaign's about. You know what it's like to run a big campaign. You know what it's like to have to deal with donors and to ask them for money. If you're if you're a Haley donor, are you looking and saying, yep, I'm going to give you a couple more million dollars to well, continue I mean, this Well, I mean, you saw that Trump tweet said, if you do that over my dead body, I mean. You're not going to be invited to MAGA camp. Yeah, it's like thugs, thuggery. But it's so predictable. Or just, like schoolyard petulance. It's like some strange Yeah, there's a childishness to it. But I really believe this. He is 
weakness masquerading as strength, mm. Donald Trump in yeah. general. In a primary, I've said it, he's a T-Rex. He'll devour you or you mate with him. Mm -hmm. Can't be beaten in a primary. But in a general election, I think he's the most flawed candidate in my lifetime. He has damaged goods. He is not as entertaining as he once was. He's more unhinged than he ever was, more extreme, obviously more dangerous uh, across the spectrum of issues. And if his entire campaign is around campaign stops in the courtroom, yeah. in a general, I don't think that dog will hunt this year. Uh, I think he's much weaker than he was in 2020 and 2016. He's a force to be reckoned with. I have never counted this guy out. To me, this was a fait accompli that he was going to be the nominee. Uh, day one, been saying that. That being said, uh, he is a very vulnerable candidate in general. Um, I do have to ask you, uh, we hear from the polling anecdotally that one of the issues the Biden administration has lost a lot of confidence Young voters, voters of color, voters in places like Detroit, key to the president's win, are very upset about his position on Gaza. Yeah. Um, you've watched this from afar. I know you're not in the administration, but do you think that they made a misstep there? Well, I've watched it close up, too. I went to Israel uh -huh. and met with the president, prime minister, right after October 7th. Saw those videos, those unredacted videos that I can't get out of my head and the atrocities of Hamas. Um, and I absolutely applaud the president's clarity and conviction as it relates to Hamas being a terrorist organization that needs to be eliminated. That said, I'm also, a, and this is me speaking, yeah, not on behalf of anyone else. Understand. I'm a father of four. And you can't watch these images of what's happening in Gaza without your heart breaking. I mean it. And with respect to Bibi Netanyahu, I met with, for him to double down on stupid by somehow suggesting that two-state solution is not the solution, that's preferable is a huge tactical mistake, not political situationally in the United States of America, but globally. It has profound, I believe, consequences. And I appreciate President Biden's clarity and conviction on that. I also appreciate his clarity and conviction trying to end this war, moving beyond the situational rhetoric around a ceasefire, ending this war and rebuilding Gaza and allowing the autonomy and freedom that the Palestinians deserve you are an excellent emissary in terms of passion, engagement, articulation, all of the things that, you know, make for a good campaigner, though we know you're not running for president yourself. No chance. <laughs> no chance. Yeah. Who in their mind would want to run uh, when you have someone of such esteem as our incumbent president okay. of the United States with a record of accomplishments and a man of character, a man of decency? I'm old school. Talk about loyalty. I'll, I'll go to ends of the earth for this guy. I really would. I'm not, I'm not making that up. So there you have it. Governor Gavin Newsom is not trying to take President Biden's place on the ballot this November. Someone please tell Fox News. Still ahead tonight, the Lone Star State will not go it alone. Several Republican leaders, including governors, say they have Governor Greg Abbott's back as Texas continues to defy the federal government and the Supreme Court over the border. Some Republicans are now invoking the Civil War. That is next. What you just saw there was an ad 
attempting to recruit truckers, military members, law enforcement members and veterans to head to the southern border. Yes, another right wing trucker convoy is mobilizing. But this one refers to itself as an army of God and recruits members by demonizing brown people as violent criminals who are invading America. And this convoy is headed to the southern border amid a real live standoff between Republican Texas Governor Greg Abbott and the U.S. federal government. For the past few weeks, the Texas National Guard has commandeered 47 acres along the U.S.-Mexico border in a city called Eagle Pass. Under Governor Abbott's orders, they covered this area in razor wire, worsening what is already a treacherous journey for people seeking shelter in America. This month, four migrants, including children, have drowned in the Rio Grande near that razor wire. And now these deaths, even after them, Abbott is brazenly defying the federal government in order to keep the wire up and to keep the feds out. At Governor Abbott's direction, the Texas National Guard has barred the federal government from accessing that section of the border in Eagle Pass, which is the federal government's jurisdiction which makes what Texas is doing here wildly against the law. And this week, the Supreme Court made that plain as day. On Monday, the court ruled against Governor Abbott in the standoff, ordering Texas to allow federal border agents access to that part of the border. But Governor Abbott remains defiant. He says that because he has declared an invasion, he has the right to ignore the Supreme Court. Now, defying the federal government might Seem like a constitutional crisis, but don't just take my word for it. We are edging very closely to a civil war. I'm serious, a true constitutional crisis happening at our border. That Supreme Court decision that was made has now put the federal government at war with the state of Texas. I say this respectfully. I say it with the fear of what I'm saying. I do not want to live in a post-constitutional world, but this court is pushing our hand. And the court needs to know that. It feels like almost like a soft civil war. A soft civil war and a constitutional crisis of Governor Abbott's creation, one that Republicans at large are cheering on. 25 out of our country's 26 Republican governors are publicly supporting Governor Abbott's defiance. Former President Trump is urging Republican governors to send members of their own National Guards down to Texas to stand with Governor Abbott, which at least one governor says he will do. Now, whether or not we are actually close to a civil war here, I do think the civil war is a relevant comparison. Because the thing that Abbott and Trump and all of these other Republican officials are willing to cause a constitutional crisis over is their ability to persecute and prosecute brown people. We will talk to former HUD secretary and former mayor of San Antonio, Julian Castro, about this ongoing standoff and what it may mean for this country. Coming up next. In a statement released this week, Texas Governor Greg Abbott opened with this line. The federal government has broken the compact between the United States and the United States and the states. Those words have since been co-signed by 25 Republican governors in a joint statement supporting Governor Abbott in his ongoing standoff with the U.S. federal government over control of the border. Those words also echo language used by secessionists in 1861 as they called for the Civil War. And yet they were still the words Governor Abbott used to explain his defiance of a Supreme Court order requiring Texas to let the federal government do its job. 
This is just Governor Abbott's latest provocation, and it appears to be working. Joining me now is Julian Castro, former Housing and Urban Development Secretary and former mayor of San Antonio. Um, Secretary Castro, thank you for being here tonight. Uh, There's a lot of sort of breaking news in and around this story. But first, let me just get your reaction to the idea that Republican governors are stoking the flames of potential civil war over the situation at the border. And whether they understand that the original civil war was about subjugating and dehumanizing brown people, which seems to be some of the things they're doing in this situation as well. Well, this is part of the ultimate irony here, Alex, that they're pretending as though the federal government is overstepping the Constitution when they are the ones overstepping the Constitution. Time and again, courts up and down the federal judiciary have said that the Constitution empowers the federal government on immigration enforcement and not state governments. On top of that, uh, Governor Abbott is yelling to President Biden, do your job, do your job on immigration, and at the same time, blocking him from being able to do his job. So it's all of that. And then it's also this toxic brew of white nationalism, of anti-federal governmentism that we also have a very long strand of in the United States. And uh, in addition to all of that, uh, this religious zealotry, as his language is laced with uh, religious references, uh, this is dangerous. And um, we're at this point in our country where we need more voices that are even louder, that are appealing to our better angels. And we also need strong institutions, especially our judiciary, to be able to push back against this. Yeah. I mean, when you talk about voices appealing to our better angels, the news we have tonight is that President Biden has vowed to shut down the border if the Senate passes the immigration deal that has been sort of negotiated behind closed doors. Now, Mitch McConnell said that they weren't going to play ball on that because Donald Trump doesn't want a deal. He doesn't want this problem fixed in an election year. Nonetheless, Biden's rhetoric here is a remarkable turn for our Democratic president. And I wonder how you think it informs, you know, the entrance of better angels into this conversation. This is a very delicate balancing act for President Biden. I think politically, uh, what he's trying to do is to assuage the fear mongering or the fears that's created by the fear mongering and the stridents of people like Greg Abbott and Ron DeSantis and others. Uh, But at the same time, hold true to the values of a country that has always said that this is a nation of immigrants, and more than that, that we're going to be a beacon of hope and we're going to stand out among nations in the world in treating people compassionately and humanely if they show up at our doorstep asking for help uh, in a time of crisis and emergency in their lives. And that's what these folks are asking for. It's They're seeking the same better life that people have for generations. So, he needs to be able to show that he's doing something to address the very serious situation at the border, but also not let go of, not dismiss, throw out the values that define us as a country. And I think ultimately that distinguish what Democrats should be from what Republicans are today, this fear-mongering, white nationalist, anti-immigrant party. We don't need to go down the road and he needs to strike that balance very carefully. I I, I guess the thing that concerns me is that Republicans feel like they're going to win on this, that, that, that the stoking of white nationalism and xenophobia seems to be working for them to the degree that they want to keep the issue out there in an election year. 
Yeah, and part of this, Alex, and we've talked about this before, is that there is no there's no pushback on on our values. There's no pushback, I think, from the president or Democrats. They're just playing defense. They ought to be out there talking about uh, that we can do both of these things, that we can have a secure border, that we can address uh, making sure that you know people are going to be treated humanely as well, um, that we don't have to give up our values, that we don't have to give up who we are, who we want to be. Uh, as we address the issues of border security. And and I feel like what the party has been doing is mostly just um, seeding that argument to Republicans so that the American people, in the balance of what they hear, they think, oh, there really is an invasion. Everybody coming across the border is dangerous. Uh, yeah. We need to stop this. They buy into that Republican argument because there's no positive argument on the yeah. other side. For well, these are women and children and fathers and brothers and sisters and mothers. Uh, Julian Castro, thank you, as always, for your time and your reminding us of our shared humanity. That is our show for tonight.